It's a common refrain among scientists that there is no such thing as a truly endless source of energy. There is no free lunch. However, there is one thing that may truly be infinite in capacity, human incompetence. The humble Homo sapiens' ability to mess up in new and creative ways may reach right into the realm of the unbelievable. Is it possible, for example, for us to screw up death? Can we die wrongly and then suffer negative repercussions as a result? You'll get used to the sand eventually, Dr. Sienna Cole cheerfully chirped as her auburn hair and Melbourne University t-shirt billowed in the hot winds. James R. Butterworth, with his pale white hand, shielded his eyes as the open-topped SUV carved a jagged gash through the roadless Arabian desert. Highly doubtful, he responded, his usual crisp, confident voice sounding weak and cracking under the relentless sun. I thought you could handle anything, Jimmy. Isn't that why you were the Times Person of the Year? She paused for a moment. Oh, oh, sorry, my bad. That was your big brother Max, wasn't it? What was it this time? Uh, Climbing Mount Everest or diving into that big blue hole? Dr. Cole, really? James mumbled, hiding his embarrassment, along with more than a shade of contempt. Dr. Cole was but a commoner. She had no great lineage like he did. Yet she spoke to him without a modicum of respect. The worst part was that there was nothing he could do about it. He needed this peppy academic, who, by the way, earned in an entire lifetime what he could spend in a single night. However, she was the only person in the world with the particular skills that he required. Money cannot buy what does not exist, so it was to do it with her or do without. Sorry, mate. It was Vanity Fair that put you on the front cover, wasn't it? I think the headline was World's Greatest Feel Son or something. Am I on the right track, Jimmy? James felt the urge to punch her, but he swallowed it down along with some sand. I'd appreciate it if you didn't call me Jimmy. What's that, Jim Jams? I didn't catch that. James spent the majority of the rest of the journey in sullen silence, his eyes tightly shut. He had imagined, before going to the dig site, that the drive across the desert would effectively be an unending straight line. However, the journey was a maze of bends and swerves as the driver avoided thorny bushes, jagged red rock formations, and imposing dunes. The shimmering heat rose in every direction off of the ground, making judging distances nearly impossible. To top it off, he became increasingly conscious of the foul-smelling sweat that had been absorbed by his shirt. Dr. Cole, however, was in her element. 
She was relaxed. Her skin seemed to glimmer in the sun as her keen eyes darted about the place, making sure the convoy was all in order. Rarely a moment went by without her speaking into her handheld radio to one of her team members following behind them. She had brought with her Australia's finest specialists in archaeology, history and anthropology. The Arabian desert that day had become a who's who of ancient world researchers and they were each quietly hopeful that they would be making a discovery that was worthy of their reputations. James almost felt saddened by the fact that nobody outside this privileged group would ever find out about it. This was strictly Butterworth business, and that meant secrecy. Is that a fighter jet? James popped up, worry apparent in his voice as a small ship, followed by a bellowing roar, rolled over the desert. I thought you said the Saudis wouldn't be bothering us. Relax, Jimmy. They're just heading down to bomb the ever-loving crap out of Yemen. It's not us they're looking for. James, although he'd never admit it, always struggled to keep secrets. The idea that someone might discover them and attempt to steal them was a constant source of anxiety. It tended to slowly chew through his resolve. He knew that the secrecy measures that were put in place were extremely reliable, but he could never quite bring himself to believe it. This earned him the nickname Twitch from his younger brother, who'd always point out that he'd be continually looking over his shoulder while carrying out family business. The sun was beginning to set by the time the convoy reached the GPS coordinates. The sands took on a reddish evil hue at that time. James imagined enormous sandworms erupting out of the dust and swallowing the vehicle whole. He shivered and then focused on their destination. It was nestled in the core of a horseshoe-shaped rock formation. He'd seen satellite images of it. Dr. Cole said it was meant to represent a crescent moon. To James, it was more like a demonic version of Pac-Man ready to close its jaws around them. The dig site was covered by an angular white marquee bound by stainless steel pillars to keep the area permanently shaded. Soon, they were passing signs that displayed a series of Arabic letters, followed by a warning that trespassers would be shot on sight. Then they wound their way towards a pounded-down section of earth, which had become the de facto car park. Dusty trucks, trailers and caravans were scattered around, Beyond were the slanted tents and furry carpets of the Bedouin, whose services had been acquired by Dr. Cole. He noted that the same symbol he had seen on the signs had been painted onto their tents. Nobody knows the desert like they do, she informed him as they exited the vehicle and strode towards the dig site. James was disgusted by the inclusion of such savages in the Butterworth business, but their use value was beyond doubt. Their labour as dumb shovels and spades came cheap and effective, and so James reluctantly had them put on the payroll. That did not mean, however, that he enjoyed being in close proximity to those he considered to be desert rats. The pair reached the marquee, the rest of the convoy dribbling in slowly behind them. 
James was taken aback by how few of the ancient buildings were visible. The site was basically a set of square foundations. Skilled archaeologists looked at such things and, in their mind's eye, saw towers and grand halls. All of this was quite lost on him. He couldn't help but feel a pang of disappointment. Is this it? He complained. It's been over 2,000 years, mate. All things considered, you're damn lucky that's what's left. This place wasn't maintained right from the day it was built, she explained. And why would that be? James asked. It was meant to be a secret. Nobody was meant to know it was even here. She purred elusively. And nobody stumbled on it all this time? He inquired skeptically. Of course they did, she answered. They didn't stay long before they ran off. Scared out of their pants. The Bedouins still say this place is haunted by jinn. By... by what? Jinn. Ginny, singular. We get the word genie from it, but it's a far cry from Robin Williams hiding in a lamp. You think that's what we're looking for? James inquired, feeling a bristle of excitement. I'd bet on it, Jimmy, Dr. Cole chirped. Come on, have a quick look before it gets dark. James followed Dr. Cole over to the centre of the maze of mud-brick foundations, where a chattering crowd stood huddled together. Above them, on the inner roof of the marquee, was an enormous version of the same Arabic letters that he had seen before. There was then a flourish of greetings and a rumble of handshakes as everyone got acquainted. To James' disgust, even the leader of the Bedouin came up and shook his hand. He resisted the urge to immediately wipe them on his shirt to rid himself of the feeling of contamination. Once the pleasantries had concluded, the people stood back and gave James a clear view of what they were crowded around. It was a brick square that had a hole, clearly recently made, pierced through it. A gap about the width of three men winked menacingly up at him, dark and inscrutable. The archaeologist, who seemed to have been in charge in her absence, began speaking to Dr. Cole animatedly. She translated from Arabic so James could understand. Uh, we, we sent a robot down there... And sent back pictures, found inscriptions, and were certain they're certain they read the dead king's name, God willing. Uh, carved wall reliefs also show motifs related to our our hypothesis. We think he's really down. We're not sure if it's safe yet to send somebody down to uh, properly survey the place. Doctor Cole clasped the shoulder of the man and said something to him in Arabic. Whatever it was, it seemed to greatly please him and he went back to his business with a spring in his step. So we finally know who the dead king is? James whispered to her. And we'd have to confirm it first, but yeah, it seems very likely. Come here. She walked over to a table stacked with papers and a few laptops. She picked up one laptop and gestured for him to follow her. They went to the southern area of the marquee. Dr. Cole stopped by a refrigerator on the way past and grabbed a can. Sipping cream soda, she said they'd head to her office for a private chat. James noted with disdain that she made no effort to offer him a can, even though literally everything here was funded with his money. Or, as Dr. Cole would often remind him, his father's money. They entered a dainty mobile office, which was actually quite cosy, once you got used to it. In one corner, 
there were two roll-up couches and a travel table. They sat down there, and Dr. Cole opened the laptop and began to read her researcher's notes. She made no effort to make this process a speedy affair. From her point of view, James could sit there quietly and wait his turn. Once she had concluded her reading, the sun was long down, and the outside was black, save for a few spectral, electrical lights scattered around the dig site. It gave the place the unsettling atmosphere that a tomb ought to have. Dr. Cole snapped the laptop shut and placed it with finality down on the table. She crossed her legs and looked him in the eye. After months of busting our asses out here, we're 90% sure that the dead king is Nabu Naid, she said bluntly. Nabu what? James mumbled, trying to shake himself out of a growing sense of sleepiness. He's better known as Nabonidus, she said. James had a vague memory of the name. He read history as an undergraduate at Oxford, but he barely achieved a passing grade, as his father would often remind him. Last king of Akkad, he began. Dr. Cole started to correct him. I mean, last king of Assyria. Her mouth began to open again. Last king of Babylon. He said it with unearned certainty. Bingo, she confirmed. She went on to give James a rundown of the history of King Nabonidus, and James nodded along as if he had followed every word she said. In summary, she said at the end, we're not sure exactly how he became top dog, but instead of looking after his country, he went off to some backwater town to worship his niche moon god Sin, ignoring Babylon's god Marduk. That pretty much made people hate him, so when the Persians came kicking down the door, he wasn't exactly seen as a great loss. He doesn't sound like a very wise ruler. Oh, just another aristocrat with more money than talent who thought looking after his own eccentric interests instead of doing what's best for the people was a good idea. He reminds me of someone, actually. So what happened to him? James asked, ignoring the slight. Some say he lived out the rest of his days in Persia. Some say he died in battle. Basically, we don't know. Well, we didn't know. James did not sleep well that night. The camp bed that he had been assigned was skeletal, and the food rations were anemic. He wondered whether Dr. Cole had arranged for him to receive as rough of an experience as possible. It was something she'd likely find amusing. He calmed himself by looking at the swirls and anodyne angles of the Arabic script that was painted over the window beside his bed. He'd seen the same symbol everywhere around the dig site. He entertained the possibility that it was the trademark of one of the contractors Dr. Cole had hired to put this project into action. The banality of such considerations was just about enough to get him into an unsettled slumber. Open your arms to the great scene, and I will give you many gifts. James started awake to find Dr. Cole staring down at him, her hair tips just about tickling the tip of his nose. Uh, what's that about gifts? He mumbled, only half aware of his surroundings. What? 
Get up, Jimmy. We're about to make the discovery of the millennium and you're sleeping in. You'll not be on the cover of Times Mag next year either if you keep this up, mate. The next 30 minutes were a mix of mumbling, groaning and forcing down hot coffee as the safety team geared them up to be lured down the shaft. James had little leftover mental capacity to worry about the descent or what they might find down there, or worse, what they might not find. He could not imagine his father's untamed fury if he blew all of his money and turned up at the end empty-handed. He'd rather have his corpse consumed by a ravenous gin than take another step towards being the most disappointing Butterworth ever spawned. The nervousness, however, came on full force as he stood, staring down into the dark hole in the ground. He didn't even try to hide the fact that he didn't want to go down there. But at that late stage of the game, he was going. Watch it there! He complained as one of the team clipped the safety harness around his waist rather tightly. The swarthy-skinned man grinned at him, a warning that a tight harness was about to be the very least of his worries. All right, Jimmy, one last thing before we take the plunge, Dr. Cole said, fully outfitted in her gear. She handed James a necklace of sorts. It was a string threaded through a plain metal disc. Hammered into the metal were the same Arabic letters he'd seen scattered about the place. What exactly is this thing? Put it on, it's for your own protection. Really now? James began to protest. Dr. Cole gripped his arm with a startling firmness and fixed him with a look he'd never seen before. I'm telling you, put it on and do not, at any point, take it off until we get back up out of the hole. Clear? Like a child who was scolded, he swiftly and unthinkingly obeyed. He slipped the necklace over his head and nodded, her stern gaze withering his usual arrogant visage. Let's get down there as quick as we can, scope out the general area, and then we'll get back up and have some brekkie. With that, the crew had both of them dangling their legs into the hole, and with sweaty palms, nothing to do with the steadily rising desert heat, they both slid over the edge. There was no drop, no drama. The pair were lowered down slowly and expertly. Torches attached to their helmets banished the darkness as they moved down a featureless, dusty shaft. The different mud bricks were mostly visible under the layers of dust and dirt, but the space was claustrophobic in the extreme. They'd continuously knock into each other and the shaft walls as they moved downward, each time giving James a visible start. Dr. Cole, on the other hand, was calm and professional, keeping contact via radio with the crew up top. The radio, however, began to experience more and more interference the further they dived. Before long, she was saying a final goodbye and telling them not to worry. If there was any trouble, they'd be a lot sharpish. When they made landfall, the entrance was a postage stamp size above them, and they struggled to hear any of their voices yelling down. Dr. Cole detached herself from the harness and then came over to help James, who had become hopelessly tangled in his. When fully free and mobile, they took stock of their surroundings. It was a straight passage tomb with numerous faded decorations, which were mostly what Dr. Cole informed him were called cuneiform script. 
There were also numerous pictures inscribed on the wall, the most common of which was a crescent moon. They moved slowly through the steel and dusty air, the sound of their footsteps the only thing keeping them company. Meanwhile, they observed the changing artistic scenes. The images mostly showed a man with an ornate beard. That's Nabonidus, Dr. Cole informed him. They started out with pictures of what looked to James like the king and his chief servant. No, that's his son Belshazzar, Dr. Cole corrected him. Belshazzar was depicted killing another man. The previous king, Dr. Cole said. It then depicted various battles and key points in the king's life, such as his son granting the throne to his father, and then various achievements, battles, and the like. The parts that seemed to make Dr. Cole the most excited were those where Nabonidus interacted with the crescent moon. In some scenes, he held the crescent in his hands, and then was shown swinging it like a scythe, cutting people in half, and then he would be seen bending over their corpses. That's grim, James observed. It's bloody fantastic, Dr. Cole corrected him. I think what's happening is that the crescent moon represents the Death Seeker's weapon. Now James was paying proper attention. What on earth is he doing with that? Experimenting, I'll bet. His people believed that he was wasting his years worshipping a moon god. He was actually secretly messing around with the physical embodiment of death itself. Dr. Cole mused, reverence in her voice. They became aware that the other members of the excavation team had started being lowered into the shaft behind them. They continued on down the passage, giving them room. The images then changed to depict Nabonidus using the crescent moon on himself in various gruesome configurations. Each image showed the king becoming ever more stooped and sickly, as if the process was sucking life from his body. Then it switched to images of an army destroying a city. Babylon, Dr. Cole said. Nabonidus was shown being taken prisoner by the Persians. That's where the official historical record ends, but the images in the tomb continued on. Nabonidus was then depicted speaking with a number of other peculiarly dressed figures. Magi, Dr. Cole said. Like the ones who visited the baby Jesus, James asked sarcastically. Right, just earlier, they're Zoroastrian priests. James had no idea what a Zoroastrian was, and he figured that it wasn't the best time to confess his ignorance, especially considering he had started to become rather distracted. The metal necklace he had been given was becoming hot. It was hot enough that he could feel it under the layers of safety gear. Before he could bring it up, however, Dr. Cole let out a roar of triumph. So that's what happened. She was positively bouncing with excitement. Care to fill me in? James asked. Blood dear right I am. It looks like when Nabonidus was taken to Persia, he, he got in with these magi and he showed them the Death Seeker's weapon. If I'm reading this right, they sort of collaborated in figuring out how to use it. Was this a fruitful arrangement? Seems like it. It says they took off into the Arabian desert and built this place. She then gestured. 
to a particular image where the king was seen curled up on a slab of some sort. A magi held the crescent moon above him. Then they used it on him. Are you saying they destroyed his soul? James asked, chills running up and down his body, regardless of the now openly hot-to-the-touch metal necklace. They sure gave it a try, but I don't think it worked. She was rather perplexed. Why might that be? James wondered, now trying to hold his necklace away from his chest. She gestured to the last picture, which was of a tiny version of the king lying on the same scene, but with the magi looking despondent. Two of them were even shown walking away, as if to depart the scene entirely. One was carrying the crescent moon with him. Beside it was a stretch of blank wall. They didn't finish the story, Dr. Cole observed. The whole thing was a failure. The pair moved along, the rest of the crew having caught up, and they all entered the main chamber. It was a simple, circular, domed room. In the centre was a carved stone plinth in the shape of a crescent moon. Lying on top of it was what looked like a curled-up, decrepit infant. A fossil. Something that looked absolutely dead. And at the same time, appeared as if it could move at any moment, that it could start crying and flailing its tiny, ruddy arms. It was gnarled and looked as if it were carved from a dark wood. But it was unmistakably human flesh. That's gnarly, Dr. Cole exclaimed in disgust. James, however, had not even noticed the repulsive thing. He was staring dumbfounded at Dr. Cole. You're on fire, he mutely observed. Dr. Cole looked down, and indeed, her harness was smoking. Wisps of flame emanated from around where her metal necklace was dangling. For a long moment, she stared in stunned silence. Then she shrieked. There was a blur of panic as crew members rushed over and desperately tried to put it out before it engulfed her. Meanwhile, James noticed that his talisman had started to cause his own clothes to smoke. He quickly moved to take it off before it set him ablaze too. Don't bloody take it off! Dr. Cole screamed at him as her vest was now thoroughly ablaze. Other crew members tried to remove it from her, but she resisted, scalding her hands in the process. She fell to the ground, wailing. Then other crew members discovered that their necklaces too were becoming unbearably hot. Disregarding the now blazing doctor's pleas, they, in a fully justified blind panic, took off the now white-hot medallions and threw them away. It was as if the world had stopped. The crew was frozen still in whatever position they were in when the necklaces departed their person. The now writhing, rolling and flaming figure of the doctor was ignored by all. Then, simultaneously, they all screamed. James couldn't understand Arabic, but he recognised one word coming from their mad, desperate mouths. Jin. Then all of them began smashing their skulls repeatedly off the ground, the walls, or the edge of the plinth. After at most four teeth-wrecking skull smashes, all was silent. The doctor, barely alive, 
had rolled until the flames were extinguished. The metal talisman was lying beside her, close enough to protect her from the dead king, and far enough to spare her further damage. She was clearly unconscious, if not dead, along with the rest of the crew. There was just James. His clothes were starting to catch fire. He lifted the metal away from his body. If he kept it on, he was dead. If he took it off, he was dead. He always liked to think he'd die a heroic death worthy of a Butterworth. But he discovered that he was too much of a coward to choose the manner of his own demise. Instead, he held the necklace dangling there, totally paralysed with terror, until the heat had burned through the string and the talisman fell to the ground of its own accord and rolled away. No word has been preserved of what went through James Butterworth's mind at that moment. All that was discovered in this research was that he walked over to the mummified corpse of the dead king, scooped it up, and nestled its head under his chin, like a beloved child. He kissed its leathery forehead before walking towards the smouldering body of the doctor. She moved, but a little, just about coming to. Bloody hell! She croaked, her weak, cracking voice barely audible. What? What happened? James Butterworth replied. Today, Doctor, I have been given many gifts.